Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Happen. In this episode, I get to talk again to the legend, Ron Schneider. He was the original Dreamfinder when the Journey into Imagination ride and Imagination Pavilion opened at Epcot Center. And he joins again after being the first person to speak in our class to talk more about his career, some of the iconic roles he's played, including Dreamfinder, but also including figures such as Walt Disney, and his impressions on the future of Figment and Dreamfinder and the future of Epcot as we move forward. And so this was a great time. I had an amazing time talking to Ron as I always do and I learn a ton when I talk to him, and I hope you enjoy it. Please come along with us on our adventure. Okay, class and everyone watching or listening, welcome back. Um, we are this time talking to Ron Schneider, um, who I know as the original Dreamfinder. Um, many people know as the original Dreamfinder. He is also the, when I started teaching this class, the first person that I reached out to and he responded and was, was so, so helpful um, and not just speaking with the class and kind of talking about things with the company, um, but over the years being very supportive of, of what we do as a class and, and sending, sending things here and there um, you know, clips of or uh, links of, of history of the company and history of the parks and everything. Um, and so I've ever since he spoke in the class the first time, I've wanted to have one of these one on one conversations. Um, and so Ron is the he's the longest span between speaking in the class the first time and the second time. Um, and that's because of me, because I wanted to come up with some new reason to talk to him, not just uh, say, I just want to talk to a, a friend and, and, and as a fan. Um, but so I want to welcome Ron back. And um, so by way of introduction, Ron, could you give us that three to four minute um, introduction as to where your fandom started because you have a fascinating story about being a kid and being at Disneyland um, where it started to where you are now and then we'll get into more of the the details of everything so welcome back Ron and thanks thank you sir um, well I, I uh, go back to I was born in 1952 in Southern California uh, so I was about two and a half when Disneyland opened. My father had done some of the original uh, air conditioning work on the, on the park. And so uh, we were there the day that it was first opened to the public, July 18th, 1955. And so I grew up at Disneyland. Um, I was uh, a kid who was fascinated with entertainment from the beginning, uh, magic and puppetry. I used to watch live kids shows on, in the afternoon that were in the local uh, television stations. And um, that kind of fed my interest. Uh, I got into uh, plays as soon as I could in school. And then uh, in uh, 1966, Walt passed away. 
And it struck me what a tremendous influence he had on my life. Next time I was at Disneyland, I was looking around and realized this is a giant stage. And we are the actors on that stage. And our, what we're doing is the story. We are, we are the performers in this, on this stage. And I thought that's a fascinating uh, way of thinking of it. And I decided that, I that that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to uh, study the way that that interaction with the guest worked. As I got older, I slowly realized that there was nothing about this out there. Nobody else was studying it. Nothing was printed about it. There were no books on Disney like there are now. And uh, I made the, the decision that was gonna be my course of study. And um, so I started spending as much time at Disneyland as I could, showing people around Disneyland who had never been there before. It was my hobby. One year I went like 18 times uh, with different people. Um, in 1970, I saw a show at Disneyland called The Golden Horseshoe Review starring Wally Bogue, it was a Wild West uh, saloon show. And I took one look at this guy on stage and I said, that's what I wanna do, I wanna be Wally Bogue. So I spent the next 10 years working in theme parks around Southern California, uh, worked for Universal Studios as a tour guide, worked at Magic Mountain as a performer, worked with wild animals. And uh, 10 years later, 1980, I went to an audition at Disneyland for the Golden Horseshoe Review. And I got the job of understudying Wally Bogue. So uh, that's to kind of started me on, uh, on the, the, my current course. I spent uh, that summer working at Disneyland uh, in the evenings for the 25th anniversary doing the Golden Horseshoe shows. At the same time, I got hired at Universal Studios to be a creative manager of a $3 million themed restaurant. I love themed restaurants. I've done a sick, I think six or seven of them in my time. So I worked at, uh, at uh, Universal and Disney at the same time. And then in 1982, I saw a sketch of Dreamfinder. And uh, I was told by Tony Baxter, this is gonna be the only Disney character at Epcot Center. And I went, okay, that's what I wanna do next. And uh, sure enough, I got Disney to bring me out here to Florida. And I opened Walt Disney World and opened Epcot Center in 1982. Uh, was there for five years doing Dreamfinder. All this time, I'm. I'm taking all the jobs I can in this particular field of working in corporate theme parks, doing creative characters that interact with the guests. Uh, so I spent five years as Dreamfinder, finally decided, well, I've learned everything here I can learn. So I left there, went to went, work for a, a company called Orlando Entertains doing themed restaurants. And I wrote, directed and starred one with one in, in uh, for, uh, Fort Liberty in Kissimmee. Did that for a couple of years. I uh, got uh, hired on at uh, Universal Studios when they opened out here in Florida. I was in charge of the celebrity lookalikes. Uh, did that for a few years. Um, then I went up, uh, went up to Canada for a couple of years and uh, worked in a theme restaurant in uh, the Canadian Rockies up in Banff, playing uh, the man who built the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Um, did that for a couple of years, came back down here got uh, hired back on at Disney, working in the uh, Monsters Incorporated Laugh Floor. I was one of the monsters. And um, so all in all, it was about 40 years of theme parks. I opened, I think, six theme parks, uh, six or seven theme restaurants, wrote for Chuck E. Cheese. Please don't hate me for that. Um, and uh, did a lot of freelance work and a lot of convention work and a lot of media production and ride narrations 
and just got to touch on all of it. All the stuff that I started out as a teenager saying, this is what I want to do with my life. I got to do it. And primarily because I kept my head down and I kept my eyes focused on my dream, what I call following my bliss. And uh, I found that uh, I, I believe uh, you're, we are never given a dream without being given the power to make it come true. You may have to work for it though. And I read that when I was 17 years old. And uh, I'm here to tell you, it's absolutely true. You can get just about anywhere you want to get. You just got to keep focused on where it is you want to be and you'll get there. The end. Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And it's like, it's so fascinating uh, reading about, or for me, listening about your career. Um, and for, for people in the class, we've talked about it before, for people watching or listening that aren't in the class, um, Ron's book is the From Dreamer to Dream Finder, um, A Life and Lessons Learned in 40 Years Behind a Name Tag. And it is, it is fantastic. And if, if you are someone who likes audiobooks, um, I advise listening to the audiobook because Ron reads it itself. And when authors read their audiobooks, it's it's that's when I get a real thrill out of it. Um, and so I, I probably have listened to that book ten times or more. Um, I'll I'll admit. And uh, but it's so fascinating with some of the the things you did in your career early on, and um, like early on in the book, you talk about like you really became a student of Disneyland and, and kind of expanded that to where you became a student and then an expert of the company and what the company does. And I remember one story in particular where you, you would collect these postcards from the parks. Mm -hmm. And just in, in looking at those postcards one time, you realized that the backgrounds of those postcards the clouds, most, a lot of them look the same and they would all match up and you could even put cards together and they would match it up. And so that was kind of, you, you said that was sort of your realization, like this is a, this is, you know, how the company wants things to be portrayed um, as kind of this, this fun atmosphere. Um, and so it, it, it's a, there's so many interesting stories in it. Um one thing that I want to talk about to get started is because we've had several back and forth conversations about this. What is to you, what is themed entertainment? And what's the difference between themed entertainment and an amusement park? Mm -hmm. uh, an amusement park is a collection of rides. And uh, there's no uh, overweening sense to it or, or environment to it, aside from a collection of rides. Um, a theme park, uh, everything uh, relates to everything else towards a particular idea, a particular desired effect upon the guest, besides making them get uh, thrown around and throw up. Um, the perfect example of this is Coney Island. When Coney Island, uh, the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, um, they opened uh, the first theme park 
first amusement park at uh, Coney Island was called Steeplechase Park. And it was what they call a uh, steel park. In other words, there are all these metal-based rides that um, would pick you up and throw you around and uh, wind would blow up women's skirts. And there was a, uh, a steeplechase ride that you'd ride a horse that would go around the perimeter of the park. And it was just all these crazy rides. The second park that was built after that was called uh, Dreamland Park. Or no, sorry, Luna, Luna Park, short for lunacy. Um, that had shows in it that told a story. The most famous was the trip to the moon, which um, and, and really in essence, there was a lot of things at Luna Park that we have at Epcot Center now, but each one was its own self-contained ride, its own self-contained story. Um, the third park built was Dreamland. Dreamland, same thing, but all the architecture was from the um, from exotic East and all the lighting was done as a piece. So there was a unity to it. It was a central idea, created a central feeling with the, with the guest. The art of the theme park, I've defined as dealing creatively with operational realities. We have, we're gonna build this theme park, okay? We're gonna, we gotta put bathrooms in there. We're gonna have um, uh, crash receptacles every 10 feet. And we have to have a first aid station. We have to have a baby station and uh, queue lines, but we're gonna deal with it creatively. We're gonna use those things as challenges to embrace them creatively and create this theatrical atmosphere. The theme park product is not the architecture and it's not the shows, it's not the food or the music. The effect of the theme park lies within the audience member. The theme park creates within the guest uh, an emotional, physical, sensual, intellectual uh, response that is unique to each guest. And that is why we go to a theme park. If we wanted to get thrown around, we go to an amusement park. It's a hell of a lot cheaper. But if you want to be touched emotionally and if you want to lose yourself imaginatively in, uh, in an experience, you want to go in the Haunted Mansion. You want to go in Pirates of the Caribbean. And you want to go to a theme park. Um, and the, uh, I realized a lot of this when I was a teenager. I grew, I, I kind of came on to it in the uh, 60s, which was a time of uh, a technological revelation. 1962, we got our first audio animatronic show, The Enchanted Tiki Room. And then came the New York World's Fair, and we got a small world, and Carousel of Progress. And then came Pirates of the Caribbean, and the New Tomorrowland, and Great Moments of Mr. Lincoln, and all these new technological advances that were used by Walt to um, create an emotional response within the guest and new ways of telling stories. But my uh, field was live entertainment, character interactions. And back in the 60s, there were no character interactions except for photo you know, photo take, photos taken with the, uh, the walk-around characters. There were musical groups, strolling musical groups. The only stage show was the Golden Horseshoe Review that 
really had any substance to it at all until we got to the 70s. So um, I, that's why the whole time of the 60s, I'm going, why aren't they doing stuff that's, uh, uh, that's live stuff that's going to engage me imaginatively? And so that's why one of the reasons I think they fed my hunger for it. Then we came to the 70s, and uh, there was a show called Show Me America on the Tomorrowland stage at Disneyland that um, was a full Broadway musical on the stage. There was nothing more than a shoebox, really, but they had a full orchestra and a, a through line and characters and everything like this. And um, that taught me, that said to me, this can be done. And so I decided I was going to, that's what I was going to pursue in my course of study. And uh, we have reached and surpassed now in the last couple of years, um, a place where now this thing is being taken seriously. We now have the um, new Star, Star Wars hotel that just opened. And man, that's exactly what I was talking about back then. Um, the, the, we've been inching towards it for a long time. And now it's being taken seriously and is being handled by people who have respect for the form and are pushing the envelope. There. The uh, one, one thing that when you were talking, it just brought up so many different things from the book that you, you talked about also, that the idea of a theme park is this 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 connected experience that people have and this connected theme for a park that people have. So then it brings up to me with Disney's Hollywood Studios, that is the like the the Hollywood produced entertainment. Doesn't necessarily have to be Hollywood, but that is the like corporate produce entertainment that we consume that's what that is paying homage to um with all the with all the rides the the um the live shows um to me and in animal kingdom is very straightforward it is about conservation and natural conservation um epcot when it opened i think was more about discovery and and education or as people termed it after what the company was doing, edutainment, um, what would you say, like the Magic Kingdom has distinct themed lands. Um, what would you say is like the overarching theme of the Magic Kingdom as a whole, if that makes sense? The Magic Kingdom is a place of uh, escape okay. and um, a place for uh, people to enjoy themselves with each other. This is something that really has gotten lost. Um, there was a time, see, the, the Disneyland I fell in love with, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. Um, you went to Disneyland and you enjoyed yourself with the people you came with. You related to them. You stood in line with them. The line moved. There was only one line. There weren't four lines for every ride. Um, and so you were hanging with these people and you would talk to each other. Everybody in line at Disneyland back then had the same hobby, Disneyland. 
Everyone had thoughts about it. Everybody grown up there. Everybody loved it. And they would talk about it. Um, now, we all spend the time like this. And um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot more to say about that uh, than just that. But um, it, it's, the Magic Kingdom was a place Walt wanted for, it was a place where adults and kids could have fun together. Parents and kids could have fun together, which is, and everybody thought, so everybody thought it was a child's, a children's place. Well, the fact of the matter is that there were four adults to every child when they, when Disneyland yeah. opened. Yeah. And um, so it was working. It was working on children of all ages, yeah. as they say. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what the, the Magic Kingdom was. And uh, still purports to be and i think the one of the one of my favorite things because the magic kingdom and i'm talking about the one at walt disney world um because that's the one i that uh, i actually have only been to walt disney world so far um we were actually going to go to disneyland in may 2020 and obviously that didn't happen um one of my favorite things about the magic kingdom because that is my favorite park i think that will always be it's not necessarily the first park we go to, but it is, it's obviously the iconic park. It has the castle and it's where if I'm going for one day, I either stay the whole day there or I start and, or finish the day there. Mm -hmm. um, the more recently, because of the way schedules work, I typically start the day at magic kingdom and finish the day at Epcot. And leave Epcot thinking, man, every time I come to this place, I, I enjoy it 50 times more than I thought I would when I walked into it because there's just so much to do at Epcot. But one of my favorite things about the Magic Kingdom is that representation of, of taking the, the boat over the Seven Seas Lagoon or taking the monorail. Um, and so it is that it is a physical relocation that kind of puts you in that mode of this is going to be fun and it's all about enjoyment and it it's is called foreplay it, yeah it yeah it's the it is the like you're you're leaving what is happening in the real world behind and here you are you're going to the to this new place um you have played, you mentioned it in your intro, you've played many roles within Disney and outside of Disney. Um, and one that I want to start with is Professor Spillikin, because in your book, you talk about how you really got to just create and play and, and come into your own with that character. Can you tell everybody what this character was and how you created this character well um professor spillikin came with magic mountain which was back then just magic mountain now six flags magic mountain uh they opened a crafts village in 1977 it's a beautiful area it was the nicest thing at magic mountain back then it was a uh small village of craftsmen uh all very 
rough hewn, a lot of woodwork and beautiful green plants and shade. And uh, they had uh, a store that uh, did lapidary work and glass blowing and candy making and leather working. And there was a blacksmith and there were, it was a, uh, a show with a country Western review. And um, there was gonna be a rainmaker. They were gonna have a guy doing rainmaking, which is a kind of a comic show. And they wanted to have a traveling salesman who was gonna sell Grandma Spillikin's herbal cure and Indian elixir. This is what the guy who was producing the place envisioned. Now, uh, I had grown up uh, at Disneyland. I'd grown up seeing Wally Bogue. And I grew up with uh, The Music Man and Broadway musicals. And in The Music Man, uh, Robert Preston played this traveling salesman. I love that character. And W.C. Fields, I was a big fan of W.C. Fields. And he always played a shyster salesman. And so I love that kind of character. I always wanted to be that kind of character. I wanted to be Wally Bogue, basically. So um, when uh, they were looking for someone to play this character at Spillicking Corners, uh, I heard about it. I went down and I had already done all the acres of work and research in the kind of character. So I was able to walk in and show them exactly what they wanted to see. And I got the job. And the really nifty thing was uh, I was left to my own devices. I was able to take my own passion and develop the way I wanted to because Magic Mountain was all spread out. My boss was on the other end of the park. I was way over here in this little shady corner and I had my prop box and I had my gags and I had a, 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 a pitch memorized. And I went out there and I was there for four years doing this uh, little 12 minute show about 10 times a day, same show over and over and over and over, which is uh, terrific. If you wanna learn how to be a performer, Go someplace where you can do the same show over and over and over and over. It's called vaudeville. It's a place to be bad. Theme parks are great for that. You got an audience pumped through every three seconds and you can be bad and you can get better. And I got better. So that when at the end of those four years, I went to the Disneyland audition and I was able to walk in and drop my bag, take out my gags, and I could be exactly what Wally Bogue was looking for. Um, so that was, that was Spillican Corners for me. And uh, the opportunity to uh, be my own boss. And as I look back on my career, this is something I've realized only recently, I've always worked alone. I've always been, on my, my, been my own boss doing characters that I was either the first to do or that I got to do alone. And uh, that really suited me. Um, I don't work well with others. <laughs> I think it might be because I, I, I think I may have been an undiagnosed autistic, uh, which we didn't know about when I was a kid. Uh, but um, I've learned a lot about it since. And I think that may have been the case. And um, it just suited me to work by myself and create these things. And I would, I would interact with guests, but very briefly, you know, I would get my, say my gag and kiss them off and walk away and get me the next group of people. And, uh, and so that was a perfect atmosphere for me. And Spillican Corners was the place where I really got to uh, uh, immerse myself in a character, 
I'd worked before then. I was Universal Studios tour guide and worked at uh, a couple of theme restaurants. But Spillican Corners was a place where uh, my, my buddy Ernie Guterjohn was our boss. And uh, he gave me the greatest blessing in the world. It's a chance to create on my own, which is ultra rare in these things. And also, your, your work at Spillican Corners did lead you to, I can't remember what the name of the restaurant was across, the, across from or near um, Universal City Studios. Wampoppers Wagon that. Works. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and um, and it also so it did as you said. It 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 gave you the experience, the confidence to go and perform for Wally Bogue at the Golden Horseshoe Review, and in the book you talk about that being just I mean a highlight of of your career and especially I think for most people who know you now people would consider that a highlight of your early career because I think most people you know know you as from your work with Epcot Center and with 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 the companies in Florida um but tell us what it was like to get to learn from, well, I guess first tell us who Wally Bogue is because uh, there's a lot of people who don't know and it is a fascinating person. Um, and then what it was like to learn from Wally Bogue and then eventually replace Wally Bogue when, when he was leaving the company. Well, as Wally would tell you, nobody ever replaced Wally Bogue. <laughs> he, um, he was one of a kind. He was hired by Walt Disney uh, when Disneyland opened, and he was put under a two-week contract. And then he worked that show, five shows a day, from uh, 1955 till uh, 1980, I think 1982. Uh, five and ten shows a day. Same show. Uh, it evolved like crazy, and he wound up directing the show, but it was it was really a variety show in which there was an Irish tenor, a female singer, and a comic, and each one of them was kind of responsible for their own thing. Again, like Spillican Corners. They could bring what they had to it, and they could discover things and work together. And, and, um, and real so quick, Ron, that is, that is a very vaudeville type of show, right? Where everybody oh, yeah. everybody is responsible for their material and it all kind of comes together is that oh, yeah. correct yeah oh yeah um and uh and it, so it wasn't it was originally written by somebody who worked for disneyland but uh nobody at disneyland uh, after that could write it um so that when the show was closed in 1986 i think it was uh, and Disney came in and wrote a new show for it, and it sucked because it was a Disney show, and it was wholesome, and it was fun, and it wasn't funny, and it wasn't touching. It was just big and loud, and uh, a lot of people loved it, but it was it was the it was called the Golden Horseshoe Jamboree, and it was just that it was a jamboree. It wasn't a review. They lost the charm. They lost the heart of it and they just stopped being funny. 
which is what that show really was, was funny. So um, where was I? Um, so while, what Wally did, oh, working, working under, under Wally, I learned from Wally Bogue before I was hired. I learned from Wally Bogue going to see the show. Every time I was at Disneyland, I would sit down front and center and watch Wally Bogue. And sometimes I'd bring a tape recorder with me. And sometimes I would take a movie camera with me. And I would go home and listen to the tapes. I would stand in the shower playing the tapes of the Golden Horseshoe Show and uh, mime doing uh, his Pecos Bill routine till it was like inside me. I knew some of his old material that he wasn't doing anymore when I finally auditioned. And um, when I got the job, uh, I had like a week with Wally. He really didn't teach me much because I, he hired me because I already knew how to do it. And um, I had to learn how to handle some props. The sad thing about understudying Wally Bogue was I couldn't go see Wally Bogue anymore because I was there when he wasn't. And um, so I, I learned a lot from Wally Bogue. I learned how to make, make it look fresh every time. How to do the same show five times a day. And we call it the miracle of the first time. The audience has to believe that this has never happened before. And it's only happening because they're watching. Yep. And that's one of the great secrets of themed entertainment is, is that is the ultimate skill that a the live theme park performer has to, uh, has to develop is that, that miracle of the first time. Um, so that's what I learned from Wally and from all the people at the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, there was a fellow, an Irish tenor there named Fulton Burley. Look these people up, by the way, folks on YouTube, Fulton Burley uh, and Wally Bogue. There's video of them doing the show and online. And you can see what, I, what, what inspired me. Well, and um, there's also video there. There is the full video of, I believe it was the 500th performance. Maybe that was, was it the 500th performance that was on um, Disney's world? Wonderful world of Disney. Um, yeah. There was, I think the, I think, I think the 10,000th performance. Okay. The show was hosted by Walt Disney. Um, it was, it was the golden horseshoe uh, cut in half prized open like they do with your chest when they cut you open to make they give you a heart surgery and uh they stuck uh edwin into it and annette funicello into it and um wally's bit doesn't work because there's no real interaction with the audience and uh so it's it's like it's nailed to a wall and and then they say to you and that's the golden horseshoe it wasn't the golden <laughs> horseshoe you can see the setting yeah you know, and you can see Wally standing there holding up the suit, but it's not the Golden Horseshoe. There are videos okay. online, including a videotape of my very last show uh, at the Golden Horseshoe Review before I, I came to Florida. And uh, the entire show is there. I was, and I was going to mention that one next because you, that there, you can see Ron's last performance there. And I think even kind of see the prank they pulled on you 
in that show in the video right they yep. they they call you on stage and usually it's thunderous applause when you get on stage they call you on stage and it's just silence and mm -hmm. nobody is nobody's clapping no and then they come on and say you know let's send him off to florida and style things like that you've uh, watched that too many times <laughs> haven't you you know what it is i've listened to the book and yeah, yeah. that's the story you tell in the book and, and i have I think I have watched that a couple times at least. Uh, yeah. So the the next thing that I was going to ask you about bef before we kind of get to what you're doing now is uh, your process for, as I said, I think most people know you know of you as the original Dreamfinder, and and what you did in the parks and there's still i mean you you live close to there you go to epcot at least more than i do a lot more than i do um you know how popular figment still is and how popular the dreamfinder character is and it's almost this thing that you you know it's almost a badge of honor to say as a disney fan you know who the dreamfinder is yeah. because there it, it, the character is not in the parks anymore um there is a a a door in the the imagination pavilion named the dean finder that's kind of homage to the character but so to start out how did you what was the dream finder in figment and how did you create that character because you were the first person playing it and the only person playing the character for a long time i was the first person to do it on a regular basis in the park that, i was yeah, not the true. first person yeah. to play Dreamfinder. yeah um true. joe Rody, the imagineer was a fellow who modeled for the creation of the robot uh chuck mccann did the voice mm -hmm. of the character in the in the park uh joe hudgens uh portrayed Dreamfinder for the groundbreaking of the imagination pavilion so there were other guys before me um, Dreamfinder uh, was when Epcot Center opened in 1982, the only Disney character in Epcot Center. There was no Mickey Mouse. And um, it was created by Tony Baxter and Tom Morris and uh, the other Imagineers as the host for the Journey into Imagination Pavilion, which you can see is positioned by, uh, behind the uh, uh, by our, our leader. Um, and uh, that was our home. And he was the host of a, of, a, of a attraction called the Journey into Imagination. And Dreamfinder was kind of a cross between Santa Claus and the Wizard of Oz. And he was created to talk to us about imagination. You know, all of Epcot Center was an inspiration park. And uh, it was all about human imagination, human creativity, and future technologies, and your place in the future. That's what the purpose of Epcot was, to show you your place and to inspire you to find a path. And I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people who were inspired by what they saw at Epcot Center, including when they met Dreamfinder, when they saw Journey into Imagination. Um, so Dreamfinder was the host of the thing and was created in order to put the process of imagination into words. Mm 
and explain what it meant, and then to demonstrate it over the course of the attraction. And he demonstrated it by way of creating a sidekick, which was Figment, his little purple dragon. I have him over here. Uh, you have to be quiet though, because uh, he's asleep, as you can see. Uh, but um, uh, that, so they, these characters were created for that. The, um, at the time I was hired in 82, uh, a few months before Epcot opened, I got to meet up with Tony Baxter and I got to see the opening scene of the ride. And Tony sat me down and explained all this to me about how they came up with Dreamfinder and Figment and the gestation of the character and how they grew out of the necessity of, of uh, quantifying creativity. And um, so I was, I was armed with all that information. And I'm an actor. I've continued acting in plays all my life. And so I'm used to taking a script and the information in that script and out of that creating a three-dimensional character that lives on stage. And so that's what I did. I took the information that Tony gave me. I looked at the journey into imagination, its content and its purpose of being a source of inspiration. And I said, all right, I've got to create a character that does that that touches all those bases. Now, that's a lot more than just posing for pictures and taking, you know, signing autographs, which is what old, typical Disney characters do. But Dreamfinder for me had to do more. And so I went out on a set uh, with my little puppet friend and uh, met the guests and played with them and played with them and, and interacted and uh, looking for a way to draw them into the theme, to get them to recognize their own creativity, their own dream finder and their own figment. And by playing with the guests, the way the dream finder played with inspiration, like the guests were my inspiration in the ride and go online folks, You'll see video of the, of the ride. Dreamfinder collects sparks of inspiration, creates new things out of it. That's how creativity works. There's no, nothing new under the sun. We just put it together in new ways. So as Dreamfinder, I went out and used the guests as sparks of inspiration and objectify them and play with them, get them to look at themselves in a new way uh, I discovered that there are only a handful of ways that uh, people can react to meeting a wizard with a dragon. And once I knew what those were, uh, I could play with them. I could be ahead of them. I knew what they were thinking. I knew what they were going to say. And I would come up with four or five different responses for each of the things that they could give me. And in this way, I got them to play my game. Yes, all they wanted to do was have their picture taken with the monkey and get the autograph and go off to the next ride. That's all they wanted to do. They would have been perfectly happy with that. I never let them. I, I always tricked them in various ways into playing with me. As a result, they came away with something more than an autograph. And the people who were standing around us waiting 
for their autograph were entertained by the crazy way I played with these people. And that's the way I developed the character was just playing with it. And I, I th we, Ron and I talked about it a long time ago. And I, I think we finally got to, came to the conclusion that when I met Dreamfinder and Figment, it was not you, it was, you had already left the company by that point. Mm -hmm. But seeing, seeing, to me, Dreamfinder was not a puppet. Right. I mean, that, that, and that's the magic of, of everything. It, it, he was, he was not a puppet. And um, you, you talk extensively in the book about the ways that you had to learn to puppet uh, or, or, or work the puppet. And, um, but, you know, like for someone seeing that as a young kid, and even as an, it stayed with me as an adult now, those two characters had such a significant impact on me that now I, I've I've written about it in my in my academic writing. I, I will find ways to to I, I've written about imagination and creativity and um and, and it's opened up doors for me to kind of look into those things. And I know it has for millions of other people. And so at, at this point, I want to make sure that I don't pass up just saying thank you for all of that, because that is that was amazing. Um, Figment still is one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite Disney characters, obviously my favorite parks specific character. Um, but thank you for that, Ron. That, that was the, it's it's great that. Uh, you get to do that. And, and just so everybody knows, when I first met Ron and found out how just approachable and helpful and kind he was, that was a very moving experience for me. That here's someone that, um, although, you know, when I was a kid, we did not interact one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you were away from the company at that point, but um, you created that playscape or that environment for the people that followed you to to continue doing that and I, I know everybody was a little different and they had their um you know people had their own ways of interacting with people um but that that's that has been a huge impact on me so thank you for that um and i you also talk about like you studied dragons um and, and you and, and and to to better understand how you could give figment the personality and how you could interact with figment and and so one thing that i think is so interesting and I, and and i'm getting to a question i promise um is as a performer i don't think we that who interact with performers kind of know the the we don't fully appreciate the creative process behind it we try to but we don't fully appreciate it because we can't where like how much preparation does it take to bring something an iconic character two characters to life 
like that? Like what type of preparation on, on before you started, but even then on a daily and hourly basis, did you have to, to, to undertake to, to bring that to life? The most important thing that is required. And this is the, if you go to the, go to the last page of my book, I talk about this. That people are this. I, these people were interviewing me, and they asked me, "What's the what's the um, the the one thing that makes this stuff successful?" And I came up with the word respect. That the performer has to respect the audience's intelligence. Management has to respect the hard work of the performer. The people who are performing and creating the show have to respect the source material. And they have to respect the form of themed entertainment and embrace it and use it. Um, for me, it was a matter of my respecting Dreamfinder and Figment, even before I knew them, even before I knew how to play them. So the first thing I did was I learned how to do the Dreamfinder voice, which was had already been created and was already, you know, was going to be put in the ride. But then I figured, okay, I'm playing a drag, I'm playing a guy carrying a dragon. So I went and got books on dragons and, um, and paintings of guys with dragons and imagine what that would be like. And it's the same process when you create any role based on a script or something that exists on paper, trying to bring it into the world as a three-dimensional object that's interactive. Um, and with the Dreamfinder and with, well, with themed entertainment, Whatever you create, however you wind up giving it to the guest on opening day, the guest is going to tell you what you got. The guest is going to tell you what works. Because if you try to go to them with something that you created in a vacuum, it's not going to involve them. They're going to be shut out. And it's about their reaction. Like I say, it's about their experience of Dreamfinder and Figment. It's not about me and the, and the dragon. It's about their, uh, what you came away with, the, the feeling that you'd met a guy carrying a dragon. And so everything that I did in preparation was to help me, to, to help me fool you. And I had enough respect for you as an audience that I realized I had to fool myself. I had to be able to walk out there feeling like this is all real. This is all real. When I would go out on set, 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, I'd be up in my dressing room, I get up off the couch, and I put on the beard, and I put on the wig, and I put on the suit, and the dragon, and the hat. And I'd always look in the mirror and just get that charge of, damn it, look what I'm doing for a living. This is what I wanted to do all my life. And then I would go downstairs. I'd walk downstairs. And on the way downstairs, i talk to the dragon. And we relate to each other. And then i walk out there. And it was real to me. And so it was real to everybody else. Yeah. It's the only way to do it in my opinion well and oh sorry go ahead 
is is you you have to re- you have to respect the audience as you would respect yourself. Yeah. And when when you create when then a lot of the stuff that's performed at theme parks now is people writing it who sit in a vacuum in an office with a typewriter and think they'll laugh at this. This will entertain them. Well, it doesn't entertain you. The person typing it isn't being entertained by it, but they're thinking you're going to be entertained by it. Well, I got news for you. If you're not entertained by it when you think of it, they're not going to be entertained by it when they see it. And um, so by respecting them as much as I respected myself and respecting the dragon as much as I respected anybody else, I was able to bring us both to life on a regular basis. Well, and you know, the, again, it, it you brought you you brought that dragon to life for millions of people. Um, you brought your character. You brought the dragon to life, and it's even funny to to try to. <laughs> to try to picture a, a puppet dragon sitting in a dressing room. Because to me, that was not, that was not that. That was a, a li- I, even, you know, even at that age, I knew dragons were, it, it wasn't a real creature, but it was a living thing to me. And I think that is what is so impressive about what you were able to do and what performers are able to do. And so, the next thing that I want to ask about is a few months ago, I, I had somebody um, talk about the, the level of immersion people experience at the Magic Kingdom. And it was based on a study she had done um, where she asked people, how immersed were they in different experiences? And, and it was specific to the Magic Kingdom. So she was asking things like uh, with, um, I think like Big Thunder Mountain with the Dapper Dans and, and six or seven different experiences. And she asked, how immersed do you think you are? How immersed do you think the Imagineers want you to be? And everybody said pretty close to the same. However immersed they felt they were, that's how immersed they believed the Imagineers wanted them to be. Now, psychologically, that kind of makes sense because we're all, you know, we don't want to shortchange ourselves most of the time as just as individuals. But she also asked, what, um, what characteristics or what properties, what assets in the park make you most immersed? And take away, take you out of the immersion. And the top answer to both of those were cast members. And then, so with that, and the way that, and it's not just Disney, the way that that parks operate now, the way entertainment operates now, because we are so engrossed with this idea of making sure we can ride as much as we can and we can do as much as we can. I mean, this last time I went to Walt Disney World, I was with my, we had, we were with our two younger kids and that's the definition of like a, a successful day at a theme park to them right now. Um, the last day we were there, we purposely, I purposely walked around slower 
so people would and it explained what why and liberty uh liberty square the the concrete is different colors down the middle of the path and, and you know kind of made them say ooh and stuff like that um how <laughs> say <ooh. laughs> how important is that character and cast interaction now that we live in a society where it is instant gratification and 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 it seems like it would be more difficult to be able to engage with people and have them stand around for five or ten minutes and not kind of you know being on a, a little annoyed or whatever because they want to get to the next ride like how important is that engagement and how would you do it now The problem with theme parks now, today, is that the company seems to be determined to destroy everything that we loved about the parks back in the 60s and the 70s. So now we have four lines for every attraction. You have to make reservations to get a hot dog. The prices keep going up. But all of that, the, the real villain in this situation, it's not Bob Chapek. It's not Bob Iger. It's not Michael Eisner. It's not your cell phone. It's not the queue lines. It's not the, um, uh, the, the, the tickets, various sites. It's none of that. It's the passage of time. That's what's killed it for me and for a lot of people. You're familiar with uh, the Radiator Springs Racers attraction in California, where you're on, there's two cars racing each other. And uh, it's a wonderful moment. You're traveling rapidly on through this beautiful desert setting. And everybody's, everybody's like this. Everybody's looking at it like this. The people who are in the car, they stood in line for two hours, and they're like this, filming it. Now, they're gonna, never, never going to watch that film, and they can see a much better film of it online, but they're going through it like this. Now, the great thing about this was, this particular video, the person who was filming turned and filmed the people in the car next to him, <laughs> all of whom were filming yeah. the ride. <laughs> and this is just the passage of time. It's just technology. And it's just destroying the Disneyland where you could walk down Main Street and run into Mickey Mouse by chance. And you could decide to go on a ride at the last minute. You gave up a ticket. You made a sacrifice to go on a ride. So you paid attention to the ride. All those things. Now, sad to say, Disneyland to me has become a historical site. The on land, this piece of land back in 1955, Walt Disney created something wonderful. And you can go visit the site now, but it ain't there anymore. There's other things there. Oh. There's, a, there's a plaque on Main Street that reads, to all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. 
Well, I rewrote that recently. To all who come to, to all who remember this happy place, welcome. Disneyland was your land. And it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad. So um, the, the idea of immersion, the guests want that immersion. They're working against it consciously. They want to get as many rides as possible. They want to save as much money as possible. And they, they got to get that popcorn bucket and sell them online. The guests' own natures and the passage of time are pulling it apart. But at heart, we want that immersion. Why do we go on Haunted Mansion? Well, we've been on it 50 times. We know every line of dialogue in that ride. We are reciting it in the dark along with Paul Fries. So why do we go? Why do we go get online, get online? Because when you step into the room, you step into that first room, it's freaking cold in there. And the wallpaper and the paintings, the cobwebs, all of it says to the child inside you, this has never happened before. And you're free to quietly, to yourself, privately, imagine that you've never been here before. Miracle of the first time. Now that happens quietly within the guest. And every guest wants that. They won't admit it. They may not act like it, but we're all kids at heart. And that's why we spend that much money going to Disney as opposed to going to Six Flags. We want that immersion. Now the, the Imagineers, in order to create that, I have to dwell on the purity of the story and use all the elements they can to create that feeling within you. They don't really believe you're going to be immersed, that you're going to believe what's going on, but they're giving you the opportunity to imagine, as, as Rod Serling would say, to imagine if you will. It's your decision. It's your choice. Now, the guests, now the, the live interaction with the entertainers. You're right. That's where immersion works because it's one-on-one -on -one and the guests see that this is happening because they're there and it's happening to them. And it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to do, especially when you're the, somebody who's standing with a rope, pushing people back to get them clear for the, the parade to come through. But all that stuff, all those moments, there's a park called Evermore in uh, Salt Lake City that is completely, there are no rides, well, there's a train, but there's no rides. It's all guest interaction. And the immersion there is much greater than there is with all of our technologies. And that's the, that's the future. I was saying this back in the 70s when I was a teenager, that someday all of the positions in the theme park are going to be occupied by actors who will be playing characters. Uh, it used to be that at Disneyland, when you would go on the Alice in Wonderland ride, 
you would be in your caterpillar and you pull up to the, uh, to the dispatch area. And the girl who was sitting at the dispatch console who punched the button to send you off into to, uh, Wonderland was dressed as Alice and had the blonde hair. And you were free to imagine that Alice was sending you. I was on Peter Pan's flight. This is true. I went on Peter Pan's flight many years ago out here. And I was all by myself in the park and I was all by myself in my pirate ship and about to take off for Neverland. And I, the girl is at the dispatch thing right over here. And this girl was this exotic beauty. I mean, a stunning woman with jet black hair that hung straight down. And she looked like Tiger Lily. And I said, I looked at her and I said, Tiger Lily is sending me to Neverland. She got this big smile on her face. It made all the difference in the world at that moment. It's a fragile thing that we're creating here, a very fragile thing. And we can, we can by increasing the amount of that guest interaction we get, you walk into a fantasy land and you go on the rides and you see the scenes from the rides travel past you and you see the characters and that's fantasy land. But define fantasy. What is fantasy? A fairy tale is the story, always the story of an average person or thing that encounters unusual challenges that they are not prepared for and comes out on top by virtue of their very normalcy. Pin Pinocchio is your average wooden puppet who encounters a whale, comes out on top, gets what he wants. Wendy, Michael, John, average kids trying to get to sleep, encounter pirates and Indians and they want, find out they want to go home at the end. Alice, Wonderland, same thing. All fantasy is that. So when we go to fantasy land, we are never challenged. There should be an ogre on the bridge in front of that castle that says to us, if you must answer these questions three before the other side you see. That's fantasy. That's a fairy tale. And that happens to us. And we put an actor there, we put an actor there and there and there and there and there. And suddenly we're in fantasy land and we're living up to it. End of lecture. Yeah, yeah that, thank you. Um, I just got lost listening to it, so. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, another, another thing I wanna ask you about is with that immersion, you throughout your career have played some pretty iconic roles. Um, you have, you, you mentioned in the Canadian Rockies, you, you portrayed Cornelius Van Horn. Um, you have played Walt Disney and Benjamin Lancaster's uh, The Further Adventures of Walt's Frozen Head. Um, and so how do you, and you, you mentioned it in your book that that was a realization that you had. How do you prepare for, and how does it feel to portray 
these real people and and in a historical sense like how does it feel to portray those people who who are real and had a very significant impact on their communities and on society it's an interesting question um when i did i did 12th night uh one year with the orlando shakespeare festival and uh i was about 58 i think at the time that i did it and um i went to uh our director and said should i put on an old age voice he says well how old is falstaff i said he's about 58 he says how old are you i said 58 i says no you don't need to put on an old age voice you're you're falstaff when i played walt disney i was 66 Walt Disney died when he was 66. Um, so you learn that you, you don't have to push. You don't have to compensate. Uh, as far as the guest knows, I am the Dreamfinder. As far as the people up in Canada are concerned. Now, the people up in Canada, I was playing a man who was William Cornelius Van Horn, created the, uh, the uh, Canadian Historic Hotels, and invented Canadian tourism and built the Canadian Pacific Railroad. And he was the Teddy Roosevelt of Canada. Everybody knew who Cornelius Van Horn was. And I was working in this village, in this hotel that he had built. And everyone in that village knew Cornelius Van Horn. I didn't have to do a damn thing but show up. If I wasn't on set, if I wasn't in costume, if I wasn't working, if I was just walking through the town, everybody knew who I was. I just had to say, yeah, how you doing? I'm Cornelius Van Arn. Um, so it's not that much of a stretch. When I worked at Titanic, the exhibition, I played a... Uh, a fellow who was on Titanic. He was a second-class passenger, but he was a member of the Guarantee Group. His name was Ennis. Uh, oh, good, I forgot his name. <laughs> uh, Ennis Hastings. Ennis Hastings. Ennis, yeah, Ennis Hastings Watson. And he was on the ship, real guy. And um, but he was a, an obscure character. Nobody knows what he looks like. I put on a little bit of a Irish dialect because he had one. And I showed people through. And one day, this woman came through and she said, I had a relative who was on Titanic. Um, and I said, really, what was his name? Because we knew everybody's name because they were on the tickets. She said, I don't remember. I said, well, do you know what class is? She says, he was traveling in second class. I said, okay. So I went and I got the, the list we have of everyone that was on Titanic. All the second class people. And I said, do you know anything else about him? He says, Yes, I think he was a member of the guarantee group. I said, yeah. She goes, yeah. I said, uh, all right. I got the names of the eight men on the guarantee group. And I read down the list of names. And she shook her head and shook her head and shook her head. And then I got to Ennis Hastings Watson. And she said, that was him. I said, darling, I got bad news. I'm your great granduncle. <laughs> and I took her by the hand and we went all through there and I gave her, a, 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 I, I, as her great granduncle, gave her a tour of Titanic and told her what it was like. Um, 
and that I think is the is the best example of what's involved in playing these things. As far as the guest is concerned, the fact that I showed up when the gun went off at the Golden Horseshoe and I was standing in the middle of the room, and this is the secret of Wally, Bogue, and all the people who worked at the Horseshoe. I would be suddenly, the lights would come up and I'd be standing in the middle of the audience with a gun in the air and I'm wearing this ridiculous outfit, hat pulled back on my head, carpet bag in my hand. As far as they're concerned, I was a traveling salesman right away. And, uh, and they believed that as long as I did, as long as I didn't do anything to destroy that illusion. And uh, when, I, when I was doing um, Professor Spillikin, doing the traveling salesman. Again, it was another ridiculous outfit, but you could tell I was a traveling salesman. And guests would laugh at me as I walked by. And I would say, you can laugh. You don't have to dress up like this. When I was doing Dreamfinder, people would laugh at me in the costume there. I couldn't say, you can laugh. You don't have to dress up like this. Instead, I say, you can laugh. You don't have to work with him. <laughs> same gag but it didn't destroy yeah. the illusion it fed the illusion and that's a i think that's a major part of it um the 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 next thing that i want to talk about is what you're doing right now it's called ron schneider's wild rides mm. and for everybody watching or listening uh there are various times that i will try to show off some type of knowledge about something and Ron inevitably tells me I'm incorrect. Um, so I don't know. I think is the name after wild toads, wild or Mr. Toads wild ride, or is this, is this something else? Nothing uh, else entirely. Okay. Okay. So there, else hey, entirely. there's, there's example uh, number 57. Um, <laughs> where, where did the idea come from and what is it? What is it? Oh, okay. Uh, good friend and uh, producer and you know, fellow who teaches video and film production named John Anderson. I had done some projects with John in the past. He calls me out of the blue a couple of years ago and uh, says, um, Ron, listen, I got an idea. I want to do a, a, a video series on YouTube and uh, I want, I'd like you to host it. And we're going to take people around and, and talk about uh, old attractions that are no longer here and uh and stuff like that i said okay i said that's been done to death everybody's doing it there's the carpet bagger does a show like that there's um uh the, the mighty woo or whatever his name is there's a bunch of guys do that i said i don't really want to do that but um i'll host the show for you you know if you come up with a show and that's the show. Yeah, I'll host it for you. Now, I'm essentially a lazy guy. I said, I'm not going to write the show. You tell me what this, you tell me what the subject is and I'll, and I'll host it. That's all I said. And I said, let's, let's, he said, okay, let's we'll have a, uh, we'll have a Zoom chat. And so he brought together like three other people, good, good people too. And uh, we were all going to sit around online and we were going to talk about, toss around ideas for this show. Didn't have a name. Didn't know what it was going to be. And they start throwing out ideas like, well, you can have a sidekick who's kind of funny. I said, uh-huh. And you can ask trivia questions. And you can ask the guest. You can have different guests on and ask them 
what their favorite Disney ride is. I said, uh-huh. And you can play different games. You have a different game in every show. I said, hold it right there. I hate Jimmy Fallon. I don't know if you remember the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. They used to have intelligent conversation. Now we got Jimmy Fallon with games and he shouts everything and he laughs at everything. I don't want to do that show. I hate Jimmy Fallon and I hate those kind of shows. Every, every podcast show, every, every show has two people who fall on a sidekick and the sidekick thinks he's funny and laughs immoderately at their own comments when no one else is laughing. He has to laugh to cover the fact that no one else is laughing and then nobody thinks it's funny. And they all ask trivia questions. They all have an opening sound collage and they always open with the phrase, keep your hands and arms inside the podcast. Permanecer sentados, por favor. I don't want to do that show. That was the end of the Zoom call, pretty much. I called John. I said, John, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know, I know that I was rude. And I, and I know I was dismissive. I said, if I'm going to do a show, I want it to be about something that not everyone else is doing. And I want it to be about something that's going to matter to people when they see it. And I thought about my book. The reason I wrote my book was for young Ron Schneiders everywhere so they could know how to do what I did. I said, I do should do a show about follow your bliss and you're in for a wild ride. And that's where I got the name, Ron Schneider's Wild Rides. And John said, okay, let's do that. In spite of the fact that I swore I wasn't going to write it, I did wind up writing down just as you have right there in front of you, a list of questions for each guest. And uh, he got us a room over at uh, Full Sail uh, Media College and he put together this ridiculous set. And um, we called five people that had done what I had done. And we brought them in. I said, I don't want the show to be an hour long. It should be 30 minutes long. I said, let's talk to the people for an hour. Let's talk for 90 minutes. And then we'll edit it down so we get to the point of this is how you do what I did. And uh, we shot, uh, all together, we shot 14 people over the course of three Sundays. And uh, a couple of them went long and I didn't want to edit them. So we have the double show. So we have about um, 15, 16 shows. Uh, and I'm really good at uh, procrastinating and uh, flaking off. And so having shot the stuff, I got the hell out of the way. John produces, students at Full Sail do the editing and the shows come out when the shows come out. And um, so there's no steady, they're gonna be there every Thursday, not gonna happen. Um, but when they do show up, they're edited pretty well and they're saying what I meant to say. And God bless John Anderson for doing that. Um, and John and, and Lou Mangello and, uh, and Panda and uh, all these people, some of whom I worked with and some of whom are Disney legends. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy with it because now I just sit back and wait for the thing to be posted 
and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to lift a, lift a finger. But that's the meaning of wild rides. It, it is. It is a. It's. It. They're really fun to watch. And mm -hmm. and I was going to mention. Yeah, Lou Mangiello's been on there. John Sicari. Those are people who've spoken to the class before. Um. And and it's a. It's a really cool project to that that you all are putting out. And it's really cool to know that there is um, university students or university class that's behind this helping to do that. So so not only are you talking about how you were able to do what you do um, or what, you know, how you got to where you were and did the things in your career, but you're also able to provide that kind of working example for people. So, so, so kudos on that. Um, and um, the, the last few things that, that I, I have planned are um, I wanted to ask about, ask your impressions of the future of Figment, the future of Dreamfinder. Will we ever see Dreamfinder come back, whether in the original form um, or whether in more like even the steampunk version that we have in the Marvel comics? Um, and, you know, so we'll start there. Where do you think? the future of the character figment and the future of the character dream finder, where do they go from here? And, and by the way, you mentioned popcorn buckets and you mentioned how popular he figment is. Someone did get me a popcorn bucket. Uh, I have mine right over here. That, that, uh, so this is, he, he is, he's obviously a very, still a very very popular character seemingly like the you know he's he's the representative of epcot now um where does it go from here you think and what happens to the pavilion yeah Sorry. well what happens to the pavilion um it's like a bad foot it'll turn black and fall off uh <laughs> First, Figment uh, and Dreamfinder are concerned. I think they are remembered because of Tony Baxter mm -hmm. more than because of anything that I or any of the strolling Dreamfinders did. The genius of that ride, that original ride, was that you met the Dreamfinder in this amazing scene. He you were there when Figment was born. You saw him create him. And over the course of the ride, you came to identify with him. So at the end of the ride, when he's surrounded by all the possibilities of what he could do with his life, you knew that was true for you too, that he represented you and, and you could do anything with your life. Because that was the message of the building. That was the message of all of, of Epcot. Um, so I think the fact that the characters are remi remembered at all uh, is a product of that. As far as Figment is concerned, why is he remembered? Well, he's remembered because of merchandise, let's face it. They pulled Figment out of the building completely and Dreamfinder in uh, 1998. And um, everybody complained, but nobody complained as loud as the people who ran merchandising because Figment outsold Mickey Mouse everywhere the two of them were both offered. Um, Figment is not a, doesn't look like a Disney character. He's all angles, he's not circles. And he's wild looking. 
scary looking. People love that. That's sexy. He's purple. That's John. That's John Hench purple, and is Cruella created by John Hench, and purple was very big back then. All these things came together, and so Figment is stuck in people's minds. They brought Figment back after a fashion. Instead of being a charming, imaginative little boy, he's now a pest on the ride. He shows up and the guy says, no, get away. You're not supposed to be here. That's, that's not how you treat somebody you love. That's the way they treated him. So he's a pest now. But he's in all this merchandise. And he's on this, this poor vestige of the original ride with a little bit of the song in it. And so he's, he lives on. Fewer and fewer people know who Dreamfinder was. Um, a lot of people know who Dreamfinder is. I mean, you know, I wear a Figment shirt, a Dreamfinder shirt. People know Figment, they don't know who Dreamfinder was. Um, fewer and fewer people know. Um, so Figment's going to be around one way or the other. You know, he had a, he had a cameo appearance in uh, Inside Out. You know, he's there. Dreamfinder, well, I saw what a mess they made of bringing back Figment. And I'm scared to death of what they would do with Dreamfinder if they tried to put him back in the park. Because they, the people who will do it, I mean, Tony Baxter has said, I will come out of retirement mm -hmm. if you want Dreamfinder. And that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Dream, Tony Baxter had his finger in the creation of the Marvel comics, along with other Imagineers who had been there at the, fit, at the birth of Dreamfinder. And so Jim Zub, who created those comic books, he got it right. He changed the way Dreamfinder looked. He changed the relationship between the two, but the heart was there and the message was there. And Figment was charming and they loved each other and all the stuff that we lost in 1998. Um, so I don't know if we're ever going to see them back in the park. I would say it's, it's an, I would, part of me says it's inevitable. I mean, the passage of time, that building is sitting virtually empty. They're showing, you know, Pixar cartoons in there now. And eventually, eventually, they're going to, you know, they're going to put, Pixar and Marvel attractions everywhere else in that pet center, and they're going to have nothing left to do but put something in imagination. I don't know what it's going to be. I think if they put an Inside Out right now, the fellow who created Inside Out, I think Brad Bird, he's a big fan yeah. of Dreamfinder and Figment. Could bode, could bode yeah. well for the future. Well, now um, that's one. Uh, that's one theory I've heard or rumor I've heard a lot. Oh, I got rumors. I got rumors. Is, you want rumors? Is, is Inside rumors. Out maybe being in there at some point with Figment being included in well, it? Well, yeah, it should be. It should be the characters inside the little girl. Yeah, they're versions of Figment. Yeah. You got Figment's joy, Figment's hat. You know, it was discussed. I mean, that's this that's a natural. Um, you want to hear my idea? Yeah. When the original ride, we were flying alongside Dreamfinder. He was flying the dream catching machine and he was collecting sparks of inspiration. And over the course of the ride, he used those sparks to create new things. This time, 
we are flying the Dreamcatcher. If you've ever seen the ride vehicle that they use for Journey to the Center of the Earth in Tokyo, it's like a small bus where the audience is open up to the side. So you got a small bus with six people and they've all got suction devices that you, you can suck up sparks. Now we're flying along and there's projections of various things and we're aiming and we're sucking up sparks of inspiration. And then we go through the realm of literature and, and arts and performance arts and science. And now we fire out the things that we collected and we're combining them in new imaginative ways. And so we're the dream finder. And that's the same ride, but now it's about you, which is what Epcot is supposed to be. That's what the ride was supposed to be. And um, that, that's my brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we're ever going to see him back. I'm not sure I want, I want to see them back. Uh, I would love to get a phone call saying, listen, we're thinking of bringing back DreamFinder. Come in and talk to us. What are we missing? Um, that's, that, that's all I got to say. That was the next question is, and I know one time when we had lunch, you said you would consult um, <laughs> on if they ever wanted to bring DreamFinder back. You you did reprise DreamFinder. What, what was it? 2011? Mm -hmm. d23 was it d23 mm -hmm. or was it yeah uh, that um and and people could see that video as well uh, yep. if you look for it on youtube um la last question um and, and now i don't know if i want to ask my rapid questions after your your comment about uh about interview shows and and what's what's the what's your favorite <laughs> ride and everything that was actually something i had written down i'm Ron, sorry so i don't know if i wanted that but no what my last question um, okay do no you do me a favor do ask because my, <laughs> my answers will surprise you i've been asked enough times that i've got very surprising answers um it, it as as i've already pointed out it wouldn't be the first time that i i do something that then i'm I, I am educated by Ron on, on uh, new ways to do things. The, um, the th what I want to ask before that, though, is Epcot is obviously, you know, the, it, it, it was always meant to go through transition, I think. <laughs> That's what, I mean, if you, if you do go back to what Epcot was originally created as, it was this place where new ideas would be shared. And everybody knows the story or a lot of people know the story of, you know, Epcot being a living working city. And then it evolves into a park where you're sharing ideas and you can experience things from around the world and different cultures. Um, so I think even now with all of the construction and all of the things that they are doing at Epcot and have planned at Epcot, I think on, on some level, there is still some of that original idea because it was a transition and it was learning new things and experiencing new things. But what are your impressions of what we know about the future directions of Epcot? And for people watching, uh, I, I think maybe I could tell, um, I'm not sure if you agree with me or not on my sentiments, Ron, but what are, what are your impressions of where, what Epcot is now 
and where it's going in the future. It obviously has a lot of IP in it now that it didn't previously, but where do you think it goes? The villain is not IP. There's always been IP in Disney parks. In 1955, there's mm -hmm. Tom Sawyer's Island. Tom Sawyer, friends, was an intellectual property. Yeah. The Jungle Cruise was an intellectual property. Yep. There's always, we're telling stories and there are only so many stories in the world it's all intellectual property. Yeah. Okay. Epcot's turning into the Magic Kingdom. It's a collection of rides that tell stories. Some of them fit in better with the initial um, mission of Disney of, of Epcot. See, the people who built Epcot in 1980 were very, very brave. Marty Sklar, Don Tatum, chairman of the board, and Card Walker, president of the company. Card, Marty said to them, we got to build a new park that is not going to be a magic kingdom. It's going to be something new. It's going to be something that's going to address the real world and it's going to inspire people and it's going to educate people and it's going to it's going to be fun and entertaining but it's going to be a real world park like a world's fair but done the way disney can do it we're going to take topics we're going to make instead of doing characters uh, buildings built around characters or stories it can be built around topics and we're going to address these topics and we're going to educate people and inspire them and give them a vision of themselves in the future we also have this idea for this uh, court, uh, court of nations. We'll tack that onto the back, okay? And we'll have it be all very cultural, very cultural, and that'll be inspiring too. But that's that's what we're going to do. And these guys spent two billion dollars building this thing, and you know they they wanted they would have been perfectly happy with another castle park, but no, they had a mission. They were going to do this brave thing. And Eisner came in and said, uh, my kid wants a Mickey Mouse hat. Well, we don't sell Mickey Mouse hats. Well, you do now. And in came Mickey Mouse. And um, I mean, you compare the two. You know, Epcot, Magic Kingdom has Hall of Presidents. Epcot has the, the, the American, American Adventure. They're a little bit dribs and drabs of things that are inspiring. But now we got um, the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it's, a, it's an incredible ride, kick-ass ride. And we got, um, we still got the Living Seas. That's still educational and inspiring. But now we're building this whole Moana garden area out there with leapfrog fountains. Gosh, where have we seen those before? Yeah. <laughs> um, we got rid of Horizons, which had a mission, had a story, which kind of tied everything in Epcot together. Now it's Mission Space. Great, th great thrill ride. Yeah. Wonderful thrill ride. Um, Epcot is, is kind of gone. It's, it's slowly being weaned away by the passage of time and the, the need for everyone to have cell phones and be entertained and get popcorn buckets. The festivals, food and wine festival and flower and garden festival are the only way they have of making money. 
and pulling people in. So you take a look at the new plans they just announced for uh, Future World. It's a garden area where we're going to have flowering gardens year-round. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, unless you remember what Epcot was supposed to be. So do us a favor, everybody. Please forget what you saw back in 1982 and, and enjoy yourselves. Um, there, there are people in the company, there were people in the company, there may still be a few who remember and are trying to sneak this all the good stuff in there. There always will be. You know, the Imagineers, their hearts are in the right place. It's the people who are money cutters, it's middle management, who are looking out for their own jobs. And as Mr. Eisner taught us, we have to have 20% annual growth every year in every section of the park. Um, and and that's, that's reality. That's the world we're in. So it's going to, it's going to continue to change. We'll never see the like of Epcot Center again, as it was. It'll be Epcot. We're saddled with that word forever. Because if we ever got rid of that, then it'd be like admitting this is the Magic Kingdom East. Um, and you take a look at all the other companies that are doing Imagineering. And they're all populated by Imagineers. That's where all the former Imagineers go when they get fed up. And um, the good work will continue to be done. There will always be inspiring work that is done because people want to do inspiring work. And they may have to do it under a, a, a management team that uh, wants something else, a different priority, but there'll always be good work done. I've always said Disney, 50% of everything Disney produces nowadays is wonderful. And 50% is a mess. Tower of Terror opened the same day, food rocks. And um, from what I've heard, as, as Lou Mangiello says, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy is a game changer. Um, and then there's uh, the New Lagoon Show. There's kites flying in, in uh, Animal Kingdom and crashing into <laughs> Grand States. That's it. Um, I, I have heard that the, the new Guardians of the Galaxy ride does pay homage to old, original Epcot. I think well, the, yeah, I think the story is oh, oh, when yeah, Peter oh, Quill yeah. went. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, it does. I, I saw a video of the character. There are no audio animatronic characters. They got rid of them. They cut that out of the budget. And one of the actors on the film, yes, lists off yeah. old, Disney, old yeah. Epcot rides yeah. that he wants to see. You'll notice he doesn't mention Journey into Imagination. Yeah. He wouldn't dare because <laughs> the guests would start throwing things. We are still um, beloved. There, there, is, there is one thing that I, I, when you were talking, I remembered. Um, as, as fans, we we tend to as fans and consumers we tend to think of um like i think of when i think of ron schneider i think of the original Dreamfinder, and i would love oh, wow. to still interact with 
the original Dreamfinder today, which is, you know, it opened in 82. It's now 40 years later. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, and fans do that. We, we, we have difficulty even in our lives that we understand everybody evolves and everybody does different things. But I think there's also something that all fans hold on to that. It's like, why this is what I remember. Why can't it be this way? All fans want is more of what they already know. Yeah. Yeah. They all want to bring back Mr. Toad. Yeah. Um, I, you can't fault him on it. I would love to have the nature's uh, mind train through yeah. uh, nature's wonderland back. They got rid of that for big thunder. I love big thunder, but yeah, I want the Disneyland from the seventies and eighties. And that's why the guests are always asking to bring back Dreamfinder and figment, bring yeah. back imagination the way it was, but you wouldn't want that. That was 1982 yeah. technology. Well, and so like on that note, like all of these attractions that we want back, um, the last question I want to ask you before kind of wrapping things up and then the, the rapid questions is you as a performer, um, you did Dreamfinder for five years. You went on and you worked for Universal. Was it for four or five years? Three uh, years. Three years. You went, you have done so much in your career that what how important was it to you to, as you said in the book, you learn something and then you move on and you pick up these lessons here and there. And so every few years you're getting to do something new as a performer. How important do you think that is um, for like just kind of the maturation of performers and, and the life story of performers that that you are changing every few years because I think a lot of performers are that way and and, and want new challenges and and want to want new material to cover it takes a certain kind of person like my number two dream finder Steve Taylor 15 freaking years okay. with that dragon and carpal tunnel syndrome and his yeah, devotion real, to it. Real quick, Ron, show us how show us how you had to work the the dragon because you've done you've shown me before, and it, it's it's a it's a pretty uncomfortable thing. You got here's the thing. You got um, you, if you to hold to hold the dragon comfortably, you have to you have to have his his head forward, but the fake arm that's holding him is under his butt. So in order to make it look like you're supporting him and holding him up with that fake arm, you have to have your elbow painfully thrust forward and his jaw is not big enough to contain your, your thumb. So you have to bend the thumb under. And so this is the uncomfortable position that you had to use yeah. to hold the dragon. Um, and when I do this to this day, I can still feel in there. Um, <laughs> So that that answers that question. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> the the importance of oh of, changing up. Yeah. Um, it, Steve Taylor could do that and thrived at it and put his heart into it. 
And he still has it. He still has the license plate that I came up with said DRMFNDR. Um, some people can do that. Wally Bogue was at the Golden Horseshoe for long enough to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. I was there for a little over two years. I could have done it for 15 and not minded at all. But I was there for a different reason. And I was lucky enough that a new door opened. Um, it depends on the reason what you're looking for in your life. You know, I came out of college, everyone around me was getting, uh, having careers as an actor. And that means that you're, you do a job and you're unemployed. And you do get another job and you're unemployed. I wanted to work in a theme park where you get a job, you're driving horse car up and down Main Street, you got medical coverage, you got job security. Not true now, now you have to re-audition for your job every, every year. Um, but uh, I would rather, instead of driving a cab, I'd rather be driving a horse car up and down Main Street. Um, so I was, I was, I had made that decision early on that that's the life I wanted. And it just so happened that it worked out nicely. Also, as I talked about, uh, I think the autism thing, um, you stay on a job, any of these jobs, and um, management always changes. Creative teams around you always change. Priorities change. And it's not the same place that you created. And so it's time to move on. Um, sometimes I took, the, I took the leap without knowing where I was going to land. And then I would spend a year or two freelancing. But because I stayed in a particular job and did a particular quality of work, I could find work. I had a reputation. Um, and that's the way I got most of my jobs was by staying in one place and doing the best work I could so that my reputation preceded me. When I went to audition at the, for the Golden Horseshoe, as I was walking up to the stage to do my medicine pitch for Wally and uh, Sonny Anderson, head of talent booking, Sonny turned to Wally as I walked by and I heard him say, this is the kid I told you about. How the hell did he even know I was alive? Just because I spent four years at Magic Mountain doing that pitch. Uh, and this has happened to me all through my, my life as people knew me for my reputation. So I tell people, you know, when you want these job, this job, get a job like it and stay there and do the best job you can. They were looking for someone to play Dreamfinder. They don't train people to play Dreamfinder. I had already learned how to play Dreamfinder. I had been in theme parks for 12, 12 years at that time. So I was able to step in and fill a hole. They don't train people to be Imagineers. They hire Imagineers. Yeah, very, very cool. Thank you. And there's, there's so many more topics that, that we could talk about, like for one, for people that are watching or listening, um, Ron was part of the first, you, you attended Cal Arts that when it first opened for, for a minute, yeah, <laughs> but you were, you were there at its, at its opening. Um, but anything else, anything else you, you think is important for people to hear, um, about anything we've talked about today before we get to the rapid questions? I don't, I don't think so. Um, if people have any uh, uh, intelligent questions that they want to fire at me, um, I would love to an opportunity either online or uh, over like this or okay. just writing out some answers. Let me know. Okay. 
Um, so then, so then I do have the, the, the five talk show rapid questions. Um, the first one I, I'm, I'm 98% sure I know the answer, which probably means I'm wrong, but, um, within Disney, within the world of Disney, your favorite park is Disneyland. I grew yeah. up there. Okay. That's home. Um, do you have of of all of the the Disney parks you've been to? Do you have a favorite themed land? Ooh, and and, and what makes it the your favorite? I guess the answer would be uh, twofold. Uh, Frontierland at Disneyland before Big Thunder, and Fantasyland at Disneyland after Tony Baxter redid it in 1983. Okay. All right. All right. Um, any, out of, out of any of the parks, favorite attraction that could be ride, that could be show, but yeah. just favorite attraction. Well, the original golden horseshoe, especially as it was in 1970 um, with Wally Fulton and Betty. Um, Tower of Terror is brilliant. Uh, of course, I, I could say that I loved Flight of Passage, but they've built it so I can't ride it. They're building a lot of rides so I can't ride them. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean as it was before they changed it. The Haunted Mansion as it was in 69 when it opened and I was a kid. Um, and the original journey and imagination. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't, we, we've talked about some of the, the iconic characters you've played, the iconic real people you've played characters you've created. Um, do you have a favorite character that you've ever portrayed real or created? Yeah. It's, the thing is that there's what I did. There's such a breadth of, and, and the characters were in such different uh, venues and such different forms of communication. When I did the, I did the tour at, at Titanic, the exhibition, and that was a one hour tour with a character who uh, ultimately had the entire guest, the group for one hour and told the entire story of Titanic from beginning to end. And I learned more about writing and presentation and crowd control in that six years than I did the rest of my life. Um, I loved Dreamfinder for what it was. It was a bit of an ordeal. The day when I got hired, I, you know, all of my life I'd hated wearing a false mustache, hated it. Every day I had to put on a beard and the yeah. mustache and the wig and the suit and the hat. And, uh, and it was one of the day that I started the job. I said, what have I done? <laughs> um, the Golden Horseshoe Review was uh, air conditioned. There were 310 people who made reservations to see me. They laughed at everything I did. And I got to work with Fulton Burley. Um, that was pure joy. Getting to do who's on first. And slowly okay. I turned at Poppy Star. Um, so, and then being in charge of the celebrity lookalikes at Universal, 
and getting to write and work with the Marx Brothers and the Blues Brothers, Laurel and Hardy. So I know I've never been able to pick one. Okay. All right. Is there, can you give us a character or characters um, that you, you want to portray or even create? So it, it could be, it could be someone that is that, that a real person that you would like to portray. Um, it could be a, an existing fictional character that you've never been able to, or just one that you, you want to create that you think would bring joy to people and to yourself. I, yeah. I never got to do Renaissance pleasure fairs. Okay. And, um, and as, as I say, because of the autism thing, I know I would be ill suited to it. However, there's one character I, I thought of, I would love to be an ogre. Okay. There was this big, beautiful wooden bridge that you had to cross over in California to get from the parking lot to the entrance of the fair. It had a very deep gorge underneath it. And there was a stream in that gorge. I would love to live under that bridge and have a costume somewhat like the, the, uh, the, the giant character from um, uh, oh, the, the, the big ogre character, the big costume with shoulders and, and tusks and stuff like yeah. this. And I would love to be able to shout at people and, and hurl abuse at the people walking above. Yeah. That, that's my dream character. Okay. Yeah. All right. And um, so that, that's it. That, that's, that's it. The, that, that's, that's the rapid questions. Um, you mentioned it earlier, um, and we always close out with four people who do want to ask you questions um, or just keep up with, with what you're doing. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Find me on Facebook, Ron Schneider. Um, I would, I'm loved, I'd love to talk to people on Facebook. Um, my book is available on on. Uh, on uh, Amazon, uh, this digital and uh, and audio, and it has soft cover and hard cover, um, and that's pretty much it. Well, again, thank you so much for this. Um, I, you know, it's been you were the first person to do this in probably February 2018. It's now May 2022. So, um, in between that first time and now um i've been lucky enough to learn a lot from ron i've been lucky enough to to have have lunch with ron um and and he is he is a very very fun person to just talk to and to learn from and so ron thank you so much for this um and and the next time that that i'm in orlando will uh we'll, I'll, I'll look you up again Okay. I'd love it. Thank you, Thank Cody. You. This has been an honor. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us and listening and to say that I hope you found the information, whether content covered in class or interviews with guests, fun, informational, entertaining, and even inspiring. If you want to follow along with the class, 
You can do so by following me on Twitter at chavardphd. That's C-H-A-V-A-R-D-P-H-D. Or by joining the public group on Facebook, Being a Fan of Disney. If you want to engage with any of the guests we've had in class, their contact information is included in each of the show notes. So again, thank you for joining us. It was a great time having you. If you like what you hear, please share this out so other people can engage with the information, possibly learn more about their Disney fandom and their love for all things Disney related. With that, thank you again and have a great day. Thank you.